0: And podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever it is you're streaming. Uh, We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. Big thanks to Fee for the last three hours of MAPS. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and tonight we're catching up on some of the directors and films being showcased at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Later on tonight, I'm going to share my conversation with director Jenny Thornley about her documentary, Memory Film, A Filmmaker's Diary. Jenny will be in attendance um Well, she was in attendance at last night's screening and will also be at tomorrow's screening as well as the session this Thursday. But first up, I'm going to share my chat with filmmaker Molly Manning-Walker about her teen holiday drama, How to Have Sex. The film is, uh, it's been described as a sun-drenched, hormone-laden trip of teenage kicks that turns dark in a compelling contemporary navigation of sexual politics. Um, there's comparisons perhaps to Euphoria in terms of the content, but it actually takes a completely different approach. Um, it really got under my skin during this festival and it stuck with me. Um, the film also received um, the Uncertain Regard at Cannes earlier this year and um, I really hope you enjoy this discussion. It does go into a lot of – there's lots of more questions that could be asked. I feel like it was one of those films that really raised uh, – it just took me somewhere else and um, really stuck with me. One thing I did want to add is that this, while there's a focus on teens in in Greece, there's um, I feel like there's something that. That older audiences will also get out of this film. How to have sex is currently playing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival, which is gonna finish up this Sunday in cinemas, but you can still catch films online through MIF Play until the 27th of August. For more information and to buy your tickets to any of the films we've discussed, we're discussing, uh, you can head to myth.com.au and we've also got a very exciting giveaway to uh, announce later, so make sure you're um, you're tuning in for that. You are listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. How to Have Sex is one of the many films being showcased at the Melbourne International Film Festival, and I am now joined by cinematographer turned feature director Molly Manning Walker. Molly, welcome to Primal Screen.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Now there have been uh, comparisons made between your film How to Have Sex and another feature debut from the UK, Charlotte Wells' After Sun, which screened at last year's Miff. Uh, It's not just that the two um, films take place on overseas holidays in these kind of cheap resorts. There is a real honesty in how the story unfolds and the interactions between the characters. How much of the dialogue and the characters um, have been pulled from real life?
1: Um, I guess they're, I only know real life, so I guess they're all a reference of real life, but they're definitely a combination of different people and different experiences, but I I went on a lot of those holidays as a teenager, so there's uh, there's definitely a reference to some people and myself growing up.
0: Mm, Well, it's a fantastic location that you've selected for this, and something that really stood out to me is that I was thinking a lot about your work, and you've got how many short films have you been? It's 20, so many, 30? Maybe
1: more, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was thinking in particular about your short film, uh, Good Thanks You, which tells of a couple's disconnection in communication. And, and here in your feature debut, you return again to miscommunication. There is so much that's unsaid in the dialogue or perhaps more accurately um, misrepresented, you know, characters saying the opposite of what they actually mean. What was it like to write that duality into the script and how did you work with the cast to sort of get that um, underside of meaning across.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes it can drive me a bit crazy because I'm always thinking of subtext of what someone says. Like, <laughs> you know, when someone says that, I'm like, what do they actually mean when they're, when they're saying that? Cause I feel like as humans, we never really say what we mean. You know, everyone's always sort of like, well, especially as Brits, we, and, yeah. we love to talk around the subject, you know. So yeah, it was it was it was really fun to write. Uh, I actually really love writing dialogue. Cause the rest like stories I struggle with, but um, <laughs> yeah, with dialogue, it I I feel it's quite fun to write. Yeah, um, I'm always writing down stuff that people say on the street when I pass them or like stuff like that. Um, so that was fun. And then with the cast, we did loads of improv. So we sort of like set them up so that they had like a really. Solid backstory, so that they could always pull from that information when they were improvising. Some one of some of the one-liners that they came out with just like so class. Um, They're all very (laughs) funny human beings.
0: Even though there's there's a lot of uh, darkness in this film, it's almost I found the experience of watching it a little bit claustrophobic. There's a lot of liveliness though, and the cast is exceptional. I think we should touch upon, especially the performance of Mia McKenna Bruce. How did you find her?
1: Yeah, she was actually one of the earliest tapes that we got through. Um, we were really worried about casting the lead, obviously, because it all revolves around her. And actually, yeah, as soon as I saw her tape, I was like, she's so good. She's definitely the one. And um, she just got this. She's got such a spark in her. Like she's always lighting up a room. She's so bright and funny and like bubbly. But then equally, there's like a, a yeah sadness in her eyes that you can kind of tap into and yeah, I think she, I think she's a superstar. I think she's going to go super far.
0: Absolutely, and a big part of the storyline around how to have sex is about Tara or Taz losing her virginity mm-hmm. um, and going on this girls' trip with Sky and M. And you've got Lara Peak and Ember Lewis as her two friends. And there's a real authenticity about their. Friendship as well. I thought it was very believable and really lovely to see joyful girlhood on screen as well.
1: Yeah, there was like a bit of a pushback on like you know what a victim looks like. They were like, "Is it too much that she fails her exam and all this stuff happens to her and and, um, and she's still like this bubbly happy person?" I'm like, "But that's what happens."
0: <laughs> yeah, there's so much of your film deals with ambiguity and. I think that something that really stood out to me—the um, title of your film, "How to Have Sex"—conjured for me the how-to guides about sex that you know from teen magazines like Dolly, um, much of which has sort of shifted onto the online space.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What was the role of ambiguity for you in the story and the characters?
1: Yeah, I think um, you know they are so young; they no- they never really know what's going on. They don't have the words. They don't um it's guessing work and something that like um I reflect on a lot is like how sort of we didn't guide each other through that ambiguity ever we just kind of like made it worse for each other (laughs) or like you can be so horrible to your friends at that age um so yeah that sort of like yeah that sort of pain that is hidden by joy all the time pretend to carry on kind of thing.
0: Well, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. I thought that the character of Badger was particularly interesting. Uh, Sean Thomas, you've cast as Badger, he played really well into that ambiguity. I suppose like when you first presented with Badger, you kind of think you know him. And then as the film progresses, there's these opportunities of vulnerability that come through. And something that stood out to me was that so much of sex education now is through porn and mm-hmm. like it's so easily accessible. Over the last few decades we've seen it become more accessible. I wondered about how boys access sex education and I thought Badger was a really interesting case study in that. Not that you reference porn in the film, but there's there's lots of sex scenes in this. Yeah, and I think,
1: you know, for, for me we did these workshops all around the uk where we were sort of like how do we talk to boys without making them feel aggressed or cut out of the conversation because you know it's really easy to point a finger and say like you know you've done this you've done that you know you're you're blame game basically and it was really important to us that we invite them into the conversation and we say listen like because of porn because of culture around sex we've learned how to have sex wrong and for me it was um we really wanted men to recognize themselves in characters so Badger's really key to that Uh, and you know as much as he fails Tara uh, at the end and he never speaks up and he never says anything hopefully men can see themselves and then therefore step into that conversation rather than ignore it.
0: Mm. One of the things that's most effective about how, how to have sex is that it really feels so honest. It prompted me to think back on a lot of my experiences from being a teenager, from early ad- adulthood. I thought a lot about uh, the growing interest of girlhood and sexuality on screen. Part of this might be owing to the popularity of shows like HBO's Euphoria. Your film really captures these kind of uh, vodka-soaked, raucous party scenes, but you're not judging these girls or these boys and... I wondered about whether you were consciously navigating away from narratives of sexualization or shame when creating these characters.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's interesting now screening it where women are like, I've never seen myself like that. You know, teenagers being like, I've never seen myself not hypersexualized, not like a comic version of myself. Um, so, yeah, for me, I like. It was a, it was like a definitely a decision, but also, um, I just find it very difficult to like be some, you know, like lie. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it was like we just we tried to create a really real set. We tried to everything, every drawer is full of. Objects. Every like the set was completely 360. Every yeah, the whole part of it was creating a real world so that they felt like they were really in that moment. Which then also comes with a level of protection when you feel like you're really doing something. Yeah, is also complicated in a lot of the later scenes, obviously.
0: And I suppose that played into like you were saying before with some of those improvised dialogue. Where they felt perhaps more Yeah, capable. they could be
1: free and, and, and like, not, you know, I think everyone was really comfortable on the set, which which meant that they could... We did this thing called an experiment where we'd, like, run the whole scene and cover it off on different angles and then be like, OK, cool, let's just do an experiment version of it where we do it with no words or we do it where all you can say is this word... Like, you're so drunk, you can only... You've got this (laughs) word, you've got this word, you've got this word. Or, yeah, we had all these, like, little different... different, You can only make eye contact with this person, but she's, like, she's not noticed at all, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And what it did was, uh, you know, I think two of them are maybe in the film, but I think what it did was it created this really, like, live, fun set where no one knew where it was going to go at any moment. So everyone was quite excited to, like, like keep it energised, basically.
0: Yeah, I love that as a technique. I thought a lot about the fact that you're coming from a cinematography background, you know, that's where the, the mm-hmm. most of your work is mm-hmm. from. What was it like not only stepping into the writing and directing role, and you got Nicholas Canacioni as your cinematographer, so what was it like kind of handing that vision over to him?
1: Yeah, it was definitely hard. I mean, like, it. you know, he did such a great job, so it made it easier for me, but, um, you know, yeah it's how I see the world so like for a lens is like it's difficult for me to see it in another way but with six main actors and like 200 people extras a day you know there wasn't there wasn't much of me yearning to take the camera.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you've just tuned in I'm speaking with the writer and director of How to Have Sex Molly Manning Walker. Her film is currently playing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Um, Molly this is really interesting timing with your film being at this festival and having a general release hopefully later this year. Earlier this year, consent education became mandatory for all school children across Australia. And at the end of last month, Dan Andrews, our premier here in Victoria, tweeted, ''Affirmative consent is now the law. That means stealthing is also illegal.'' Uh, these new laws make it clear that everyone has a responsibility to get consent before engaging in sexual activity Now, how to have sex it 's an exploration, a very close exploration of consent. One of the things that stood out to me is is this kind of lack of clarity sometimes, and I wonder how you think of your film as being part of this conversation. Yeah for me, I think consent 's been
1: like become too binary almost it 's like too black and white everyone thinks of it as like yes or no but really I think it should be like is the other person having a good time you know and I think that is really clear and when when someone is and when someone isn't and if you've made someone feel comfortable enough that they can like tell you the truth uh like if I stopped talking to someone in a conversation you'd be like are you okay so why is it different when you have sex
0: Mm. There seems to be this kind of almost yo-yoing of bravado and, and then this awkwardness after after the act. And I, I thought that was such an interesting observation. And part of that seems to be connected to the stage that these characters are at. You know, they're at this wonderful point of liminality, I suppose. And I thought about the restlessness of teenhood and kind of wanting to be an adult already and we see this in Taz, Sky, and, and M, who pretend to be much older than they actually are. I wondered whether writing this story and bringing it onto the screen um, prompted you to reevaluate adolescence and this liminal space. Yeah, I think it's funny that we
1: always try and grow up before our age, you know. And like when I see kids uh, doing stuff that's stupid on the street, I'm always like, basically, as adults, we're just trying to be kids the whole time. But we, but as kids, we're like so desperate to grow up. <laughs> Like, like we get drunk as adults, everyone turns into, like, children again. And then when you're a teenager, you're like, no, I want to, you know, go out and (laughs) earn money. And it's like, why? It's so boring, terrible. Um, So, yeah, I think it's interesting that you always kind of want what you don't have.
0: So true. that ties in so interestingly with, with sex as well with this idea of wanting the experience you know Taz is so eager to lose her virginity and has these ideas of exactly how she wants it to happen of course things do get a lot more complicated than that it does feel very gendered often that the act of losing one's virginity I mean the phrasing itself is, is yeah, <laughs>
1: such a weird phrase it really
0: is. <laughs> like you've left it left yeah. it behind at the door yeah often um we don't have this conversation around boys losing their virginity you know that is really behind behind doors um Bit.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much shame around it, which is the sad thing, you know, is mm. that if everyone spoke about it more, then it maybe it wouldn't be this, like, weird, like, fuck, I did it, yeah. and, like, it, it's done, thank God, it's over. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think there's some school groups who might be going along to the film, is that?
1: Yeah, we're going to try and, like, uh, in the UK especially, we're going to try and do, like, school ticket, like, not school, school, but, like, teenage, you know, sixth form college, um, discount tickets like six pound tickets or something like that to try and get as many young people in as possible and then we're also going to try and do like pair it with a sex ed class where we go in and like show them the film and then talk about it as part of that
0: Oh, that's really excellent. That really gives me a lot of hope. I went to a Catholic school growing up, and um, very little sex ed. I think there was like a, a birthing video, a really particularly vivid. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I really feel as though your your film is a fantastic and and really meaningful contribution to the to that conversation. So. Yeah, I hope not all the kids don't get too scared and they still want to have sex. <laughs> Well, it's still a very joyous film. Good. There are moments of, of really, um, real joy. So yeah, thank I you. mean, it's meant to show the partying and the fun of it as well. I'm curious to know where you're thinking you'll go next. I'm going to make something really light and funny. <laughs>
1: and um, <laughs> where, yeah, no, um, I don't know. I'm really interested in just like people and the weirdness of people. And something that I often think about when I wake up shows what goes on in my brain. But um, it's like we chose, we could have done, anything in this world and we chose these like sets of norms that we like follow as a society um and so i I think i'll continue to look at that as a as a as a thing
0: and we should mention, although this is uh, the Australian premiere of How to Have Sex, you have already screened How to Have Sex at Cannes and you were the winner of Uncertain Regard. What a huge achievement.
1: Yeah, it was a pretty crazy ride. We finished <laughs> oh, yeah. the film on like the Friday and we went to Cannes on the Tuesday. So it was like the f- first birthday is <laughs> the world big time. <laughs>
0: And you have John C. Riley, of course, as head of the jury for Cannes.
1: Yeah, he's a lovely man and he also sang a song for us in the, uh, in the uh, acceptance, uh, what do you call it, in the, when we won the award. Really? <laughs> yeah, he sang a song. Yeah, he's very sweet.
0: <laughs> um, Molly, it has been such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. So on tonight's show, we are spotlighting some of the amazing films and filmmakers being showcased at this year's Melbourne International Film Festival. Just prior, I uh, shared with you my chat with Molly Manning-Walker, the director and writer of How to Have Sex, which is playing this Thursday and Friday as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. You can head to miff.com.au for more information and to book your tickets. I'm now joined by filmmaker Jenny Thornley. Jenny, your film Memory Film, A Filmmaker's Diary, is playing as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. Now, I understand the impulse for this film came from the Japanese tradition of jisei, a poem written in the very last moments of a poet's life. When did you first come across these death poems and, and how exactly did they inspire this work? Well, um, Probably six or seven years ago, a
2: friend, a very dear friend, gave me the book, Japanese Death Poems. And I started reading it and it just really resonated with me at the time, and I loved it because it's just, it's there's a simplicity about, well, they're koans, there's a simplicity about them, but just the story of in Japanese culture how not just the monks and the, the Buddhist monks and nuns but regular householders there is a tradition of everybody when they get to a certain age they write poetry about transience of life and aging and it's deeply embedded in japanese culture and i really love that like i suppose because i'm the age i am it resonated and our culture is i think fairly into denialism around aging death and dying we value uh, innovation new youth um, and there's a really wonderful Ozu film. I forget the name of it, but the main character goes to the mirror and he says, oh, here's another grey hair. That's how it's supposed to be. So there is this kind of acceptance in Japan of mortality and ageing and death. And, and the book of Japanese death poetry really resonated. And, and as I read it, I thought, well, I could make a film in that spirit of the Japanese death poem. It doesn't have to be literally like a koan, a haiku, but but the spirit of that idea of meditating on the transience of life. And at the same time, I was um, going through my whole film archive at home and I had um, like a 30-year Super 8 collection, some of which is... I've always used some of the Super 8 in my other films for certain sequences, um, but this was this is a big archive of Super 8, and I got it out of the storeroom and it was getting a bit mouldy, and um and I decided that I'd put a proposal to the National Film and Sound Archive: What if you digitise my Super 8 collection for me, um, and I will donate? Everything I've got, of you know, my whole film, they've well, got my films and stuff because it's part of your um, contract that you, masters of your films get donated to the archive. But all of the associated materials I donate to the archive if you digitise my collection. And there happened to be this really, they were just very receptive to that idea. I was bowled over. And uh, Sally Jackson was the curator who um, took my project through and she knew my other films and she just saw she could see how the Super 8 collection was linked to the films, mm. but, but it was like a kind of interior, like the diaries of mm. the filmmaker were instead of being a diary written, although I, I do write written diaries as well, but I have kept this film diary. I never thought that it would become a film. Mm. But I did have certain rules um with we, the we, film. Oh okay. They were um, absolutely no narration, Mm. um, only the Super 8, um, no voices, uh, just a music, a a film that's completely structured with music.
0: Mm. I actually love that was your approach and I love those rules because it fits in so nicely thematically with this idea of the death poems and the sense of the impermanence of film and the possible degradation. It's lovely that your work has been able to be digitised, but I thought that, that played in so well and the music is gorgeous. And I, I love that the subtitle of your film is A Filmmaker's Diary and it very much feels like ruminations, both political and personal, that kind of punctuate the this this footage. I became a mother at the start of this year and I found myself really wanting to document the everyday and there's an almost... Uh maddening repetition to caring for a small baby. Much of your work does capture motherhood on screen. What first prompted you to turn the camera around? After
2: I made um, For Love or Money with, uh, in a collective, um, For Love or Money is a feature documentary on the history of women and work, and uh, I didn't have children, but my sister had four daughters and I was quite involved with her and her family as an auntie. And I was also involved, and you see that whole chapter in the film of the communes that I've lived in and that I filmed where a number of the women had children. So I started to become very involved with, with mothers and their children in the 70s and in the 80s, um, although none of the women that I was working with, not many of them had children. And, you know, that's a whole other discussion about the film industry and having children. And, and which still, I mean, those issues are discussed much more now across the whole field of work than than were being discussed in the 70s or 80s. But um, after For Love or Money, I and I did kind of a festival circuit overseas with it and came back and I was offered a job. I was headhunted as, um, for a job as the manager of the Women's Film Fund, which was then at the Australian Film Commission, and I took that job and i worked there for a year or so then i became pregnant in 85 and had my baby girl letty and i developed a treatment for a film about motherhood mm. and put it into the film commission and and part of the budget for that film was documenting motherhood on super 8 and so a lot of the footage that's in memory film is footage that i shot for that film mm. and very little of that footage ended up in Um, what's called the film on motherhood is called to the other shore Mm. um, which was kind of in hindsight a film about it's really a film about therapy and motherhood you know because I actually found motherhood really perhaps because I for then I was an older mother I was 37 when I had my daughter but I found it in I just found it such an intense experience and kind of um there wasn't the language, the shared language to talk about it. Like you're in a mother's group and so perhaps you are talking about it with the mother's group or with friends and so on. But actually I didn't join a mother's group and none of my women friends had children, a couple did. I just found it really intense and really hard and I went back into therapy and in hindsight I think I was in, I don't like the word postpartum depression, I really don't, but I think I was very depressed. And I and I felt how the performativity of motherhood. I could feel how, you know, partly it's how you have to cope Mm -hmm. with the reality of the repetition and the sleeplessness and the and what the needs of the child bring up in you Mm -hmm. uh, when you don't sleep and the night wakings and the and the and it can become you know 18 months in. I was breastfeeding for 18 months. You know, and there's much joy there as well. It's this kind of, it's written about, you know, it's written about this intensity of the beauty and intimacy and the amazing thing about Mm. having a baby. But then the other side, which is, you know, I call it the dark side of motherhood. This footage that I filmed back then in the 80s, very, and the film that I made is very different from what memory film has become, Mm. you know. And so I'm very... I'm so delighted that I'm in memory film. I think you can feel it, especially if you're a mother. There's great, the great uh, pleasure and joy in having a baby, and um, and the you know it's in the footage. You can mm. feel it in the footage, and I don't think I'm just romanticising it or painting a kind of um, unrealistic picture for women. A friend of mine who, a colleague of mine who said of my film To The Other Shore, which is a film about being a mother, she said it's such a dark film, you know, and, and actually it is quite heavy. It's got a heaviness about it, which I don't think this film has. It's quite a different film. I mean, it has got heavy elements. It, I wanted the film to actually thematically... And you'll notice that there's certain scenes that are repeated. With the uh, "We Remember All Women Who Were Raped in All Wars," that footage that I filmed back in the 1980s. At one, it was actually I filmed it at an ANZAC Day march, mm. and the women were refused the right to march, mm. and marched straight into the paddy wagons, were arrested. Wow! I mean, that's it's a really amazing piece of archival footage.
0: So much like, of Memory Film does document uh, protests like the Tent Embassy, the Women's Lib, um, anti-war protests. And watching the footage from these events, I couldn't help but reflect on how the right to protest here in Australia has been significantly impacted recently by legislation that directly affects protesters. And I wondered what your thoughts were on that. Well, I just think it's,
2: you know, shocking I mean, it's really shocking, but what is, what is equally as shocking is there's a kind of, I experience, and I don't know what you think, but there's a passivity in political discourse or political action that's so different from the time that I came through. I, I went to Monash University in, I, I was educated in Melbourne and went to school in high school, primary school and high school and, and went to Monash. In the '60s, when the Vietnam War was raging, and that the whole campus was in complete breakdown over the Vietnam War, and classes were stopped, lectures were stopped, the the the, the campus was divided physically. We'd have these amazing sit-ins and demonstrations, and and then, of course, with the women's movement, um, which the Vietnam War activism that I was involved in preceded my growing um, consciousness about women's liberation, and then I became involved in the women's movement, particularly around um, the right to abortion. Mm. I I joined that road or that tributary of the women's movement because I had experienced an illegal abortion and it was pretty shocking, and um, that radicalised me. So it was was such an amazing time to the 70s and coming into the 80s to be involved in what, what in memory film is called the ferment, the fissure, Mm. That's that section where there's this kind of like, um, and Sheila Robotham, I use a Sheila Robotham quote in the film where she uh, talks about, the quote is about this contradiction in capitalism when when women's inner experience and their outer reality clashes Mm. and that is the moment of revolt. And, And it's such a great quote because that's what, happened you know Mm. women were just it's a bit like the me too movement in in this era Mm. there's been these instances where there are these eruptions uh, which which can't be contained and and so this legislation to make demonstrating more difficult and more onerous for those who want to express their point of view I'm I, I think we have to continue to be activists and and challenge these really, otherwise you end up in the handmaiden's tale reality. You can see how that can happen. That's Absolutely. what I think was so amazing about her books and the series. Trump is re-elected in America. Not only Trump, but Australia, you know, Australia's under the, even the current Labor government has completely endorsed AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines in our ports. And we're currently witnessing major military manoeuvres up north and at Jarvis Bay with America Mm. in order to kind of, you know, make the
0: Pacific armed. I mean, we're moving into a war economy. I think that's one of the things that stood out to me so much about memory film. Yes, of course, it is a personal account. It's something of a a visual diary for you, but it's also so firmly entrenched in the political sphere, and something that really stood out to me was the way in which you've, you work in documentary and documentary film has this long colonial history and in memory film you ruminate on the colonial gaze of the camera and you note the colonial layer feels like skin. What if I shed it and see it with different eyes? There's
2: a Indigenous activist Aboriginal Tasmanian Jimmy Everett and uh, I'm born in Tasmania. And my previous film, Island Home Country, I made in Tasmania. And I, I, um, I worked with the some members of the Tasmanian Aboriginal community in order to make that film, with protocols. And Jimmy, um, Jim Everett, there's a quote. There's a number of quotes from Jim in Memory Film, and it's almost like he's the kind of. Uh, and there's also a quote from Carla um, Dickens on. Um, Australia Day Mm. and the pain of Australia Day for Aboriginal people. There's a quote from Jim in, in the Tasmanian sequence of memory film where he says you have to go outside of the colonial construct. All people, he actually says artists, black or white, no matter, have to start to move outside of the colonial construct and see things in another way. And so that quote I've also got, how can I film... With different eyes, mm. has really been um, uh, inspired by Jim, but also by, in in, in with post-colonising thought from radical mm. thinking, First Nations people mm. in Australia and globally, where, you know, so many of them have wrenched, you know, wrenched the um, uh, dialogue, wrenched the narrative out of white colonial hands mm. and brought it back. To themselves, mm. and I've been very—I read a lot in that area, and I—I I did my—I did my last film was a was my doctorate film, so I had to kind of really think and read very deeply, and I wrote a lot about Tasmania because it really affected me that I could be born there in the late 40s and 50s and know no Aboriginal history, nothing. Mm. And um, Stanner, the anthropologist William Stanner, talks about the Great Australian Silence, you know, and so I, my generation and and previous generations to me, and still many, mm. uh, and the debate about the voice uh, and so on is still all of those issues of the Great Australian Silence and wanting to kind of put it put the lid back on, mm. you know, put it back down. Is it, it, we're in a very eruptive um era now um where it's it's right out there but to grow up in the 40s and 50s and not know that there was an attempted genocide Mm. on that island that Mm. that the British invaded the lands that there was terra that there was no treaty you know settler Australians have to come Mm. to some kind of reckoning with that absolutely
0: Um, For listeners who have just tuned in, I am speaking with filmmaker Jenny Thornley about her film Memory Film, A Filmmaker's Diary. Um, Jenny, in the film there's a lovely sequence towards the end in which you have all these beautiful compilation of dancing bodies. You've drawn on poetry as the impulse to make this film and then turn towards dancing. I'm just interested in the conversation that's happening between these different art forms and, and what dance means to you. It's a really great question. The opening sequence
2: of the film and the closing sequence and a little tiny sequence further into the film is the dance company, is Dunic Dance Company. It's been choreographed by um, Paige from Bangara. And in that sequence at the beginning of the film, you can actually see him leading the dance company, off after their performance. But the actual company is Dunwich. I loved how they opened the film and they closed the film. And to me their dance is like a statement of country. Mm. It's a statement of um, this is our country, this is our country, their country. This is our ceremony. We're mm. sharing the ceremony with you. But it's. I think the closing quote is, from uh Bobby McLeod, something like this fire never dies. And it's kind of saying, Aboriginal culture never dies. It's it's here. It's here at the beginning and it's here at the end. And it's a very for me, it's a really powerful statement. But prior to that, there is a dance sequence with a compile of dance that I filmed over many periods of time, but I also filmed alone. But I also joined a dance. I used to dance with the Margaret Barr Dance Company. And then about three or four years ago, I, you know, I had some emotional kind of issues I was working through, but I really didn't want to do therapy. I just thought I've done, not that I've done therapy, I really respect it, but I just didn't want to do talking therapy or therapy. I wanted something really lively and joyful. Mm -hmm. And I started doing a dance class called Nia, which is a combination of Tai Chi, yoga and dance put to kind of world music, I guess. It kind of worked its way into the film. It really did.
0: (laughs) I really did. Yeah, there's something really beautiful about that sequence and it really stuck with me. And it's interesting hearing you talk about dance in the same breadth as therapy because I can't help but feel, you know, that idea of trauma and experiences being held in the body and maybe dance being a way to release some of that or to engage with that. And just on the topic of therapy, I thought it was interesting that in To the Other Shore you use Melanie Klein as a reference point for this construction of the female self as both mother and daughter and in memory film you reference Freud and psychoanalysis has, of course, a long and, and quite complex relationship to feminist film theory. What is your own relationship to it? Look, I had, a, I had an, an analyst who was a Kleinian,
2: and I went into Klein – well, I didn't know I was going into Kleinian analysis. I went into therapy uh, when I was making my first film, Maidens, in 1977, I went into therapy, and I, I was in a crisis, and I was carrying a lot of stuff from my family that had never been worked through. And as you know, if you don't work, if you don't work it through, it's going to erupt at some point, you, you, or you're going to repress it and you're going to get sick, mm-hmm. body. And um, so it erupted, and it was triggered by you know some very. Um, it's kind of
0: represented in memory film the quotes speak to betrayal and also a lot of grief there
2: yeah and i i that was part of not using a narration but using you know the captions and the titles and the quotes to, to take the place they help structure the film but i did i wanted to take it away from an i voice narrating the film i wanted to take it away from and i think that I've succeeded. I think I've succeeded. People might call it an autobiography, and obviously it is, but because it's not narrated and because it's got this distance, Mm. you know, that I filmed the footage in my 20s or early 30s and I'm making the film as a woman in her 70s, or I was in my late 60s when I started, time moves inexorably (laughs) on. (laughs) So there's this kind of... Senior, I like to say I'm a senior lady. <laughs> I'm looking back, you know, as a senior lady. That's mm. to some extent from Aboriginal women who are so, and people as elders are so highly valued in their culture. Mm. You know, and they say, I'm a senior lady. Mm. You know, it's, it's, you know, and I'll have my white hair. You know, it's <laughs> fine. I'm here. I've lived. I've had these experiences and I can share them. It's this senior lady looking back at this. And it's called the second look. Into a space of possibility
0: mm. that if
2: you can, if you can, and the space of possibility is not my original phrase; it comes from another great writer in feminist film, feminist theory, who talks about the space of possibility. In that space of possibility, you take a second look, in a way, that quote from Freud that's in Memory Film, well, it's, it's the title of one of his essays: mm. remembering, repeating, working through which is kind of like the three principles of psychoanalysis. You remember, you work it, you repeat, and you work it through. Now, if you don't, if you just get stuck on the repetition compulsion, the compulsion to repeat the pattern, you never work it through, and you stay locked in melancholia Mm. and Mm. sadness and grief. But if you are lucky enough to have a witness, and there's all sorts of witnesses there, Psychoanalysis doesn't own the field of working through trauma. It's one of the roads and
0: um, feminism is one of the roads for me. I can't and- help but feel as though your your film is exactly that in practice though. You're repeating back over this archival footage. You're going back through your past but in representing it and and sharing it, and us bearing witness to it, there is something else being created. And I really do love that there is no narration. You have this beautiful score and you so have much. these these discussion points almost that are anchored very much to the political, uh, the feminist, uh, the anti-colonial. There is so much there. Um, I enjoyed your film immensely and I'm very excited that it's going to be part of the Melbourne International Film Festival Jenny, it has been such an honour to speak with you.
2: I've enjoyed it as well, and you know, it's uh, you're really thinking deeply into all of those themes and issues, and it's very heartwarming.
0: Oh, thank it's you, really,
2: really heartwarming. Because the audience is the witness. You're right, but the characters who are the people who I filmed are also witnessing back. Mm-hmm. So there is this what um, Michael Renoff, the film documentary film theorist, calls the I Thou relationship. So there's the people that I'm filming that are in an I-thou relationship with me as I film them, they look through the camera to me, they engage. It's very strong, that engagement. And now the audience is through their look back to me and their look at the images, they are coming into the fabric of the text as well and become part of that journey. So so it is a journey, an ongoing journey. It's very, very, um, so I'm very happy to have shared it with you. Thank you.
0: Can I ask just just before we wrap up what is next on the cards for you? I don't think I'll make another film.
2: I think this is a really lovely film to finish making films because at, I'm 75 this year and um filmmaking is a really hard it's a hard slog. It's taken 6 or 7 years to get this far with this film and um you know, you don't really earn any money and you raise money to make it and you pay everyone who works on it but you, you don't make any money. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually make sense, economic sense, and um, so I need to have a break and I've got two grandchildren and two step-grandchildren and I hope to be more involved as a granny than mm-hmm. nana because I haven't been able to do that while I've been making the film much. But... Being involved in caring for um, my granddaughter, particularly my granddaughter Millie, uh, for three years has really helped go into the fabric of this Mm. film as well. That that maternal sequence, even though I'm documenting my daughter's time, but it's been informed by the great pleasure in being with, being a grandmother. It's a very, Mm. very, um, I'm gifted. It's a gifted experience. It's great. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I bet. I certainly think that there is something very radical about having your depiction of motherhood and returning to it in memory film. So thank you for that. Yeah, that's great to know. I really, I'm so happy for that. You've been listening to Primal Screen on R with Flick4. Just prior, I shared my conversation with Jenny Thornley, the director of Memory Film, a filmmaker's diary. It is a really impressive um, and very extensive Super 8 archive spanning three decades. And uh, I also, earlier tonight, I shared my chat with Molly Manning Walker, the director and writer of How to Have Sex. Both of those films are screening as part of the Melbourne International Film Festival. So you can head to miff.com. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website.